This is the Persistence of Christian Memory podcast, episode number 27, with Vince Darty and Bruce Darty. Good evening, Dan. Good evening, Vince. Good to be with you again. And welcome back to another episode. Dan, what are we getting into tonight? Well, tonight, I'd like for us to make a at least the first part of a fascinating study that I think often gets overlooked by modern day Christians. And uh, part of the reason for this neglect or this overlooking might be because there are some blessings I think that uh, we take for granted, uh, you know, in so many different ways. And the particular blessing tonight I'm talking about is the Bible or the Word of God. Uh, The Bible is among the most printed, most translated, most distributed books in the world, yet still it's often uh, unread and neglected. But the conversation I'd like for us to have tonight is not about how we motivate people to read and study the Bible, which is a great lesson that we need to do. But instead, it's about how we have come to have the Bible. Uh, It is an amazing gift from God. And it's a story that many people might not be familiar with. You know, the Bible did not come down to us miraculously out of heaven in uh, its completed form that we know today. And so to know the story of how we got the Bible, I think is very faith building study uh, as we look at it from the pages of church history. Dan, do we have any of the original autographs from the books of the Bible? Like, do we have the writing uh, of Matthew and Mark and Luke and Paul and Peter and those guys? Um, And if we don't have those originals, how can we be sure that we still have the Word of God uh, today? Well, to answer these questions is uh, kind of the focus of our discussion tonight, because we're going to talk about the idea of inspiration and what that is. But we're also going to talk about then how this, uh, these books and these epistles and uh, these gospels were collected and uh, first, uh, cir- how they first circulated among uh, the early Christians. And so all of this is uh, in the idea of, uh, again, the giving of the Bible from God to men. By inspiration, of course, we mean the idea of God breathed. And this is the claim of the New Testament writers. Uh, Paul makes this claim in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for rebuke, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, uh, thoroughly furnished for every good work. We also know that this is what uh, Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where he said, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from private interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along or borne along by the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, a guy didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'll write some of the Bible today. It was rather the effect of God on uh, on the these individuals, these men who wrote the scriptures. And uh, again, this is what Paul, I think, is talking about in Ephesians chapter three, verses three through five, where Paul said that as he wrote to these Christians, he said uh, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. 
And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Uh, these three passages, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, and Ephesians 3, 3, 3 through 5, tell us about the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made that uh, in John 16, 13, that uh, when he left, the Holy Spirit would guide uh, his followers, uh, his apostles into all truth. Not to get too far off track, but... There's a question sometimes that arises when looking at religious, quote-unquote, religious text of do the text even claim to be from God? Do they claim to be from divine origins? Um, outside of the Bible, um, I can think of the Quran. Uh, Muhammad believed that he uh, had writing from God. Uh, outside of that, some of these uh, uh, quote-unquote world religions uh, have many, many followers and things, but are, are those religions even using any kind of sacred text? That's a, that's an imp uh, good uh, good observation to make and share because. Uh, uh, if something doesn't claim to be from God, then obviously we should not give it uh, the importance that uh, maybe some people would ascribe to it. Uh, in the Hindu religion, uh, they do have uh, some of the writings that they view as authoritative, but uh, uh, again, uh, I'm not cer certain whether these writings claim to be uh, given by God. Uh, the same thing when we think of uh, Confucianism in China. It is a, a powerful philosophy followed by millions of Chinese people. But uh, Confucius never claimed uh, that he was a prophet from God. It was simply sharing a lot of common sense that Confucius wrote down. And so the distinction of the Bible is different from some of these other books because, as we said, uh, the passages that we've just read, they all uh, make the claim for inspiration. And in fact, in this passage from Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul says that uh, he his knowledge was made known by revelation. God revealed it to him, but he also wrote it down and he was... Uh, was also convinced that as uh, the Ephesians would read his epistle, his written word, not just his spoken word, but his written word, he said that they would be able to understand uh, his insight into this mystery of Christ. And he says it's uh, this is uh, something that had been hidden in other generations, but it was now being revealed to the holy apostles and prophets. Here, it's also important that we understand what we mean by inspiration. Sometimes I think people use the idea of inspiration and they mean the idea of being inspired some, uh, by something. For example, somebody might say to me here in Daytona Beach, oh, I went up to the, the beach at sunrise this morning and I was so inspired by what I saw. Well, that's the effect that that beautiful scene had on the person who was witnessing this. But this is not what we mean by uh, the Bible is inspired. 
when we uh, talk about that, it's not about the effect something has on us, but instead it's the effect that God had on these human authors to give his words so that they could be written down and preserved. And so this is what we mean by the idea of inspiration. And when we think about this, from the very beginning, the early Christians always had a Bible. Now, in the uh, beginning of the uh, movement in from Jerusalem, it was the Old Testament scriptures, uh, most often used in the Greek translation that we know as the Septuagint. And it was the these Old Testament scriptures being interpreted with Jesus as the object of their faith. And uh, this method of understanding uh, was exactly what I think Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, where uh, Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, thus it is written that the Christ should, uh, excuse me, he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I'm still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so this was how the early church understood these things. There's another passage that came to my mind. Jesus talks with um, the Pharisees in John chapter 5, I think it is, where he says, you search the scriptures um, looking for eternal life, but those scriptures are what testify about me. Uh, and so Jesus definitely knew um, he was fulfilling these things in, in his life. And again, it's this idea of the uh, understanding that Jesus is the key to what the Old Testament was about. This is uh, an important difference between uh, a person who is a Jew today and a person who is a Christian today. Uh, we both use the uh, Hebrew scriptures but uh, Christians view them as uh, having been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so this is an important thing to, to understand, that there was never really a time where God's people did not have the written word to help them and guide them and be authoritative for them. And again, it's from Jesus himself that we have this. George Adam Smith made this statement one time. He said, Jesus accepted the Old Testament history as preparation for himself, and he taught his disciples to find him in it. He used it to justify his mission and to illuminate the mystery of his cross. He drew from it many of the examples and most of the categories of his gospel, and re he reinforced the essence of the law and restored many of its ideals. But above all of this, Jesus fed his own soul with its contents, and in the great crises of his life, sustained himself upon it as upon the living and sovereign word of God. So, Dan, when we think about these um, copies of the original manuscripts, when did they first start appearing? Well, uh, the New Testament itself talks about uh, the sharing of, uh, you know, the writings of uh, Paul with uh, other congregations. I think, for example, of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.27, uh, where he uh, made that, that young church take this very early letter. And he said, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. 
Well, that could include more than just those in Thessalonica uh, as they were doing so. Uh, another passage that speaks of this idea of uh, other congregations reading uh, God's word is found in Colossians 4 and verse 16, where Paul wrote and he said, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of La the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And so there was an exchange of letters here. And I imagine that most New, Con uh, New Testament congregations, if they had the original from Paul, they would hold on to it. And then they would make a copy to be passed on and read to the other uh, to the other congregations. And so uh, when we see this going on um, in these years of the first writing of the uh, letters from Paul, of the uh, writing of the Gospels and uh, the history in Acts, in this period from about 50 to 95 A.D., the writings we now know as the New Testament were in circulation. And based on some archeological uh, discoveries, uh, for example, there's been a discovery of gospel fragments written on papyrus and found in Egypt. Uh, and we know that these copies of the gospel thus were circulating in places far from their place of origin. And they were being collected in uh, book form, what we call codices. And, uh, and, and so the archaeological evidence for this here gives testimony to the wide circulation uh, of, these, uh, of these epistles and the fact that they were being copied and shared. So these epistles or writings of the apostles and uh, other men from this first century, um, were they immediately accepted as scripture in the beginning? Well, that's a good question, too, uh, to know the authority that, and the weight that these care, uh, carried. And uh, there are several places in our New Testament in these uh, writings where, again, uh, apostolic writings were viewed uh, and called Scripture, just like the Old Testament writings were. Um, one of those is uh, in 2 Peter 3.16, where uh, Peter uh, talks about uh, the his beloved pa brother Paul uh, and what he had risen. And he said, according to the wisdom given him, as he writes in all his letters, when he speaks in, the, in them of these matters, there are some things he says in them that are hard to understand. That's an, uh, that's a, an impressive thing that a fellow apostle, found the writings of Paul hard to understand. It uh, gives me some hope that when I find things hard to understand in Paul, uh, I'm in uh, good company. But as Peter went on, he said uh, these uh, that ignorant and unstable people twist these to their own destruction. Now get it, as they do the other scriptures. Here, Paul, uh, or Peter, excuse me, is referring to Paul's writings as scripture, and uh, just like he would have referred to Old Testament passages. And so uh, to elevate the writings and the letters of Paul, to in, in, as Peter has done so here to the idea of Scripture, uh, this is a powerful testimony as to the uh, 
view of the authority that they carried. Another passage that speaks to this is uh, found in 1 Timothy 5, 18. And uh, here the Apostle Paul uh, is uh, quoting, and he says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's an Old Testament passage. And then he ties, And the laborer is worthy of his wages. That is from the Gospel of Luke. And so in this one verse, Paul is uniting Old Testament Scripture with a passage from Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and he's calling them both Scripture. And so this tells us that uh, there was an understanding that these individuals would uh, view, that they viewed from a very early point uh, that uh, the writings of Paul, the Gospels uh, that uh, Luke and others wrote, that these were being accepted as Scripture, just like the Old Testament. One just very practical thing that is recorded in the book of Acts, Acts 2, um, those people who received uh, the preaching from Peter and, um, and were baptized, it says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Um, so, like, to, from for me, I make the uh, the connection there from Jesus uh, in the those later parts of John, uh, talking about the Holy Spirit coming and guiding them into all uh, all truth, uh, and then now as they continue, now that Jesus is gone, they're still being guided by the Holy Spirit. And so whatever it is they're writing, it's just as authoritative as anything in the Gospels that Jesus spoke. Um, sometimes people talk about, you know, um, the red letters in your Bible and um, only focusing in on the red letter parts. Well, when you really consider it, it is all in, coming and inspired from God that has been recorded and wrote down. And so um, any of the things quoted in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels, excuse me, um, is just a, a, on the same level as far as authoritative as, uh, you know, the book of Acts or the letters or uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, it's all on the same level. Yes, and so we need to respect the authority that's found there. And uh, another passage that talks about uh, the expectation that something written would be, uh, would be helpful and beneficial is found in the Gospel of John. You remember in John 20, verses 30 and 31, where John said, uh, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing uh, you may have life in his name. Uh, certainly, if a, if a person heard the living Apostle John preach the gospel and responded it to, to it, they could have life uh, and everlasting life. But here, John himself has the expectation that the person reading his gospel could also come to faith and have the faith that it produced. And so uh, it tells us again that John had the expectation that the written word would be every bit as powerful as the spoken word. And this again gives, a, I think, a practical little nugget that um, our world sometimes, uh, for whatever reason, wants to uh, neglect or, or whatever reason not uh, not adhere to but we don't have to have some special illumination of scripture 
we can read it, study it. Does it take effort and energy? Absolutely. You know, uh, we have to be diligent students of the Bible, but we can come to a, a knowledge of the truth. Yes, and that's, uh, I think, the expectation that uh, these writers had, that uh, as these men wrote uh, what they were uh, writing about, there would be uh, the expectation that it could be understood and, uh, and it could be uh, put into practice. And so when we see these declarations in Scripture about the, the authority or the respect that uh, these uh, writings of the New Testament had, and then when we also add to them the writings of second uh, century Christians like Clement of Rome and Ignatius and Polycarp and Papias and Justin Martyr, just to name a few, here we find these were individuals who knew and quoted from the letters of Paul and from Acts and from the Gospels. And uh, Justin Martyr even tells us that the Gospels were read in Christian assemblies alongside the readings from the Hebrew Scriptures. And so all of this uh, is a demonstration in a very, uh, I think, in a very practical way, linking uh, the New Testament from the first century with the uh, second century writings that tell us that uh, Christians uh, were already looking upon the writings of the New Testament as a, uh, just as authoritative uh, as the Old Testament scriptures were. So when I think about my Bible, I have a completed 66 books. Um, when did the New Testament become uh, solidified? When did it become uh, its own distinct unit? I know there are critics who want to say that, oh, the Bible didn't come into existence till hundreds of years after um, uh, Jesus or his apostles. Yes, and uh, unfortunately, this idea has pervaded in a lot of places. I think even some groups, uh, I know the, the Roman Catholic Church is kind of fond of reminding Protestants, we gave you the Bible. And uh, some people also have uh, bought into the idea that it was the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD that, uh, uh, that again, um, made the Akhenaten official. Um, this is a piece of fiction, and it was popularized in 2006 by the movie The Da Vinci Code. But the formation of the canon, the collection of these 27 books that uh, we call the New Testament, it was not a decision that was made in the fourth century. And in fact, I don't, I'm not even sure it was under discussion at the Council of Nicaea. But uh, in fact, uh, already by the early second century, this idea of the canon was already being uh, in circulation. Now, certainly it was not uh, the closed canon idea that we know of our uh, 27 books uh, that we have uh, today, but there were lists that Christians held that were uh, what they viewed as uh, was the canon or the recognition of uh, the scriptures that God wanted to ha uh, men to have. 
You know, the Gnostic heretic Marcion, he appeared about the year 144 AD in Rome. And when he arrived in Rome, he had a Bible or a collection of scripture that uh, he would quote from and read from and regard as authoritative. Now, Marcion's Bible was very different from our Bible. Uh, It had no Old Testament because Marcion was a Gnostic. And in a discussion we had earlier on our on our podcast, we talked about the Gnostics. But uh, he had no Old Testament because he rejected the idea of the creator God of the Hebrew scriptures. And uh, for him, uh, Christianity and Jesus could have no relation to that God. And so his Bible was composed of uh, two basic uh, parts. It had an edited version of Luke's gospel and 10 letters of Paul. Uh, And again, these were edited and amended according to the way Marcion uh, wanted uh, his doctrine to to, um, be confirmed by these uh, editorial uh, actions that he did. But you see, Marcion did not originate this idea of the canon, that is the rule or the standard, the list of the books that were viewed as authoritative. Uh, Marcion, uh, I think probably hastened a process that was already going on. But the early church fathers, when they opposed Marcion, they viewed him as having cut down the list that the church universal had accepted as canon. And some very important second century witnesses to this principle are found in Tatian's Diatessaron, written in 170 AD, which was a uh, harmonizing of the four gospel accounts into one um, in the writings of Tertullian, another Christian from uh, North Africa, writing in 180 AD as he uh, very strenuously opposed heretics like Marcion and uh, Valentinus. And he he argued over who has the right to the Christian scriptures. And thus he had in mind a body of truth that uh, he called the Christian scriptures. Another man who was a contemporary was Irenaeus. And he wrote in the last two decades of the second century. And he was very explicit that there were only four gospels. And Irenaeus, uh, along with uh, other Christian writers, uh, knew of a collection of books that they called the New Testament. And, and so, again, we need to understand there was some variation among them as to which writings were can- in canon. But each of them had a list. And uh, it was an understanding and a recognition that these were the books authored by the apostles or somebody closely associated with apostles. And uh, thus, uh, they were important things to uh, uh, vehicles for containing the Christian faith. Another uh, great witness from this uh, final period in the second century is the discovery of the Muratorian fragment. Uh, it is a Latin work, and it includes a list that has the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It has the book of Acts, 13 letters of Paul. Uh, It also has 1 John, Jude, and Revelation. Now, it it also is missing a few uh, documents. Uh, The book of Hebrews and James, 
uh, and the two epistles of Peter, as well as the uh, small one-chapter letters of John, uh, are not found on this list. But uh, the list is uh, a very important witness as to the fact that uh, in the second century, they had uh, an understanding of these books as being uh, the New Testament, an understanding of their authority, and they're an understanding of uh, the collection that uh, was then authoritative for the church. And then when we add to this the idea of second century translations of the New Testament uh, into the Latin and the Syriac and the Coptic languages, they tell us again about the importance and the authority of these books and how they believed it was necessary for people to be able to read these in their own languages. All right. So, so I'm, a, I'm Christian. a I'm converted in the first century um, or early second century, and I'm looking at these writings. I have... Uh, the Gospels written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm looking at the um, epistles from Paul and Peter and John. Uh, and what is it that I'm looking for? What are the principles that I'm using to look for these authoritative scriptures? Well, I think the criteria that these uh, uh, second century Christians used were, first of all, they asked the question, is this writing apostolic? That is, uh, did Peter write this? Uh, did Paul write this? Uh, did Matthew write this? Did John write this? Or uh, they would also accept if some, someone uh, was a very close associate of uh, these individuals. And thus, uh, we see where I think Luke and Mark uh, both fit the, the bill with Luke being a uh, companion of uh, the Apostle Paul. John Mark also having been a companion of Paul, but also to Peter, as we know from 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 and verse 13. And so if uh, here was a book that was uh, uh, by an apostle or a close associate of the apostle, that was one criteria that they used. The second question I think they asked was, how old is this work? Obviously, if a work was not uh, from the time of uh, the first century, from uh, Peter and John and Paul and Matthew and Mark, uh, if the work was older, even if it was seen as uh, an important devotional work or something like that, like, uh, let's say, like uh, the Shepherd of Hermas or some of these second century Christian writings, uh, while it might have some value as far as its devotional material, it simply didn't uh, fit in the time frame of the first century writers. And so uh, a book that was uh, from a later period would be rejected. The third question I think that they asked as they would uh, look at these uh, writings were, how useful is it to the church universal? That is, uh, is the uh, description here and the use that uh, can be made of this, does it apply to uh, every, every uh, you know situation or is it uh, just something limited to uh, maybe uh, a particular viewpoint and this is why again the Gnostic writings were rejected 
because uh, they didn't fit the the churches where whether these churches were in Judea, in Syria, in Egypt, in Alexandria, in uh, in Europe, uh, a a writing had to be acceptable by all these churches, not just from one particular uh, point of view. And of course, uh, it had to have uh, the right doctrine or what we would call orthodox doctrine. Uh, and, and again, there are some today who might question this idea on who determines orthodoxy. But, uh, you know, things that uh, spoke of, uh, you know, secret messages that uh, like the Gnostics would speak of, certainly that would not fit in this idea of uh, the, the sound orthodox doctrine uh, that was beneficial to all. And so these questions uh, were used as they uh, as they collected uh, and recognized recognized the New Testament. Today we have the completed New Testament. And when I where I the completed Bible, and what I mean by that is the sixty six books, um, Old Testament and New. Now there are some other books that are out there that people will a lot of time associate with the Bible. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking about the, the Apocrypha. Um, mm-hmm. How do you view the Apocrypha? Well, uh, again, that, that uh, is really a, something that pertains to the question of the Old Testament. But uh, you think about uh, the Jewish uh, people accepted uh, the the scriptures. We know of the the Torah, the five books of the law. Uh, then uh, Jesus himself uh, spoke of the segment of the Old Testament called the writings. Uh, and uh, we would know that uh, kind of like the Psalms and uh, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And then uh, there were the books of the prophets, which uh, in their way of recognizing things also included the historical books uh, in the times in which those prophets wrote. But then there were books that uh, found themselves in that time between the Testaments added uh, to uh, to uh, the use in, in certain Hebrew communities uh, that we call uh, the apocryphal books. Um, uh, think of first and second Maccabees and uh, uh, the book of Enoch and some of those works. Those are uh, all what we would call apocryphal books. And, uh, and, and again, part of the uh, distinction between uh, Roman Catholic and Protestant world is the acceptance of the, the Apocrypha. Uh, the Apocrypha was uh, included in Jerome's Latin Vulgate, and I think that's a big reason why the Apocrypha has been accepted among uh, the Roman Catholic uh, uh, people today is uh, simply because it was included there. But Jerome, though he included it, he said uh, these were not really to be, uh, you know, viewed as being a part of the Old Testament scriptures. And so uh, there are books like that, apocryphal writings uh, from the Hebrew uh, Bible. And then uh, there are books uh, from the New Testament time period, uh, which, again, uh, Many of these were rejected in the first century and they were in circulation. They were known. But sometimes you see people talk about the lost books of the Bible. Uh, 
Well, they're not really lost in the sense that we've just discovered them and they ought to be there. Uh, they were books that, uh, again, because they didn't uh, meet the criteria, early, early Christians rejected them. And so uh, this is what we mean when we're talking about that kind of material. One more question that I have as far as looking at the text of the Bible and the kind of thinking about the history of uh, the collecting of the the writings and things like that. How do you view God's hand in um, preserving and uh, correctly preserving? Do you put it on the level of a miraculous or do you see this as uh, more um, uh, providential? Well, that's that's a good question. And whether we wanted to view it in a miraculous sense or in a providential sense, I guess I've always understood it more in, in God's providence. When Jesus said, uh, for example, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Uh, that is divine pronouncement on uh, the the lastingness of, of, the, of his word. And the same is, uh, I think, what we find in First Peter chapter 1, where... Peter talks to these Christians and he says, uh, since you were born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then Peter quotes from Isaiah and he says, all flesh is like grass and that's all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's this living and abiding word that uh, I think providence assures us that uh, this will always be true. And so when we think about the canon idea, just to summarize, it's important to recognize uh, the church recognized these writings as authoritative from the very beginning. And these were the books that uh, they said were handed down to us in their own words. And what they were saying as they made the canon list, it, they were saying it is these books and then no other ones. And so the church was, uh, I think, a valuable witness to this process made the, the, that made the canon. But the church itself was not the judge. In fact, they viewed themselves as being under the authority of Scripture. And so they received these writings, they preserved them, and they accepted them as authoritative. And uh, this list of books in the New Testament that we call the canon has not been seriously challenged in 16 centuries. And so this is an important part of uh, the study of how we got the Bible. And I'm glad for it. The the beginning of this discussion and uh we our aim is to have a part two uh in our next program in which we'll talk a little bit more about uh especially like the number of copies we'll try to address some things of um yeah, are there mistakes in, in these copies and, and things like that so um glad for the beginning of this conversation of how we got the bible and uh look forward to uh, our next episode as well be thou my vision.